0: Well, speaking of middle school, I was with uh, one of our ministry leaders the other day. Just We were just kind of sharing and praying together back here in the prayer chapel and talking about some of the different people in, in his ministry sphere. And there was one particular person we were talking about. And I said, you know, I think really basically that person is just trying to recover from middle school and what happened to him in middle school. And it's so interesting that the ministry leader just kind of stopped and said, You know, I think I'm trying to recover from middle school. And I had this thought that maybe all of us, you know, in one sense or another, are trying to recover from the brutality that uh, often takes place during those early teen years in middle school. Well, here's one thing I do know for sure. Behind that name on your name tag is a story, isn't there? It's the story of your life. And it's a unique story. It's a God story. There are some high points in your story. there's some low points in your story. And even though all of our stories differ in the details, the fact that we're all part of the human family lets us know that, that we share a lot of things in common, don't we? There are things we've all experienced. Ours is a story of hoping and dreaming, but also of hurt and disappointment. Some chapters of our stories are full of fun and friendship and laughter. And other chapters have some hurt and betrayal. There were some good decisions that we made along the way, and there were some not-so-good choices that we made that we, we sometimes regret now. And it's probably true that the experiences of those early teen years probably marked our lives and the successive chapters in a very unique way. But let's not forget this morning that the story of our life is also the story of redemption. It's the story of a God who, for reasons known only to Him, decided to set His love upon us, even though we weren't very lovely. It's the story of a Creator who has pursued us throughout the course of our lives, not shielding us from hurt and pain, but promising to be with us through those experiences and to reveal more of Himself to us Through them as well. It's a story of a God who, in his mercy, decided to provide everything necessary to redeem us from sins our own sins, the sins we inherited, and even sins committed against us. So I like to say, thank God for God. Thank God for God. What a Savior. You know, the more I discover the truth of God's story, the more I realize that my own little story is actually swallowed up in the big, grand story of God, like a thimble full of water dumped into the ocean. I'm coming to see that all of human history is immersed in the grand story of God, the God who created humanity for himself and for his own glory. And I'm seeing more clearly these days than ever that the apex of that story, the gospel, is not only the hope of our individual lives being redeemed, But the hope for all of creation being redeemed and reconciled to God. The gospel assures us that the grand story of God and of his people has a stunning dream-come true epilogue that will never, ever, ever end. That's what eternal life is all about. Well, today we're embarking on a a new series for the next this and the next three weeks, and it's going to be slightly different from the norm. I'm going to talk very openly to those of you who consider New Life your church home, your church family. I'm also talking to those of you who are regular attendees here, and maybe you're checking out New Life, trying to decide if this is the place where God wants you to get planted. And I know we have guests here every week, and and I'm also talking to those of you who are guests, because I think that if you continue to come, you'll, you'll hear and feel the heartbeat of New Life Church over these next several weeks. Because as you know, it's August, and traditionally in our church, during the month of August, what we do is just kind of take a step back and we, we re-examine who we are and what we're all about and make sure that we're all clear on that so that we're we're on the same page together as a church. You know, usually when I come back from my summer study break, I'm all fired up about what I've been learning and I come back and I just kind of, blah, you know, hurl it all over you. And I do plan to do that again this year. But the way I want to start out is by giving you a visual, a picture that I think illustrates what the Lord has been doing among us for the past several years. So check it out on the screen. It's also on your little uh, study outline. If you haven't pulled that out yet, you can um, draw that out of your worship folder so you can follow along with us. And so you can see at the center of this diagram is the gospel. The gospel, the good news. And we know that the gospel is that message that has within itself enough power to not only redeem each of our individual lives, but also to redeem all of creation for God. And I place it in the center of this diagram to represent God's work in this church of reestablishing the gospel as the centerpiece of our church's life. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And then notice surrounding the gospel are these three three dimensions of our lives or three areas that the gospel influences both individually and as a church. The first one is identity. The gospel shapes our identity. As we progressively believe the truth of the gospel message, as the gospel drops from our head down into our hearts, it has the power to reshape how we view ourselves, doesn't it? Instead of being held captive to a self-image Formed in middle school or by whatever our parents spoke into our hearts as we were growing up or whatever the opinions of others are of us or whatever our culture tells us we ought to be or who we ought to try to be like. The gospel tells us what God thinks of us. God's opinion of us in Christ, how he views us. And so the gospel was meant, I believe, to shape our identity as individuals. We'll talk about that a lot next weekend was also meant to shape our community. And what I mean by that is, is that the gospel has the power to influence how we interact with each other, how we view one another in the body of Christ, how we relate to each other. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then the gospel also impacts and shapes our mission. That's what we've been called to do in the world. That's also shaped by the gospel. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it, for the last four weeks or so around here, our mission. So... Think about it. Identity is how we perceive ourselves. Community is how we relate to others in the body of Christ. And our mission is how we relate to the world around us, what we've been sent into the world to be and to do. And we'll talk about that mission piece on the last week of this series. I believe this diagram gives us a visual picture of what I've come to call the gospel-driven church. And without a doubt, in my mind, this is the journey that God has had us on for the last several years. And if you've been with us during that stretch, you already know that's the direction God has us going. If you're newer to new life, we want you to know right up front that that's what we're all about. I often tell people if I, I meet them up front after a service and they're new, and I say, well, you need to know that, that, that we love Jesus a lot around here. And, and if you keep coming, you're going to hear a lot about Jesus. And if you don't like Jesus, you're not going to be happy here. But we hope that you'll come to love the Lord Jesus Christ, like we do. I believe we're on a gospel adventure together, a progressively unfolding adventure, in which the Lord is showing us more and more ways in which he wants his gospel message to shape our identity and our community together and our mission into the world. And so today I want to talk mostly about that centerpiece in that diagram, the gospel at the center Recently, I was having lunch with a uh, church planter at a local eating establishment here in town. We were enjoying a lunch, and he said, you know, I got a couple questions for you. I said, shoot. He said, well, first, what exactly is a gospel-driven church? I see on New Life's website that you advertise yourself as that. Can, Can you describe what that is for me? I said, fair question. Let me give you my best shot. I believe my understanding that a gospel-driven church is a congregation of believers that's seeking to keep Jesus and his gospel front and center in the life of a church. Front and center. Jesus, the central theme of our teaching, the primary passion of our people, and the driving force behind all of our plans and decisions and priorities and direction. And so we chatted about that for a while, and, and we've both been in church for a long time, and we both agreed that many different things in the life of a church can actually compete for center stage, for the spotlight in the life of a community of believers, especially as that church grows larger. It's pretty easy, for example, for a church to become driven by tradition. Ah, yes, tradition. I've been in churches that felt like they were driven by tradition. Have you? Now, in a tradition-driven church, the motto is, You know, let me make sure I get it right here. The reason we do certain things is because we've always done it. You've been in those kind of churches too, huh? And of course, every church has traditions, and we have some traditions here. But when those things take center stage, then it becomes all about preserving the tradition. We dare not tamper with those traditions lest the founders, you know, roll over in their graves. And we wouldn't want that to happen. So tradition can drive a church. Some churches are driven by tradition, some are driven by needs, by whatever need is currently being presented to the congregation, and we all know there are many different needs, and we would all agree that it's a good thing to meet needs, right? But is there a primary need that the church is called by its founder to meet? That's the question. The church can become driven by a personality, like a a dominant personality in the church, you know, a a dynamic, charismatic individual who just has this magnetic personality and people are drawn to them. And when that guy stands up and says, well, here's what I'm passionate about, then everybody says, well, that's what we're passionate about too. They just go off in that direction because of the sheer force of that person's will and the magnetism of their personality. A church can become driven by personalities. Some churches are driven by their building, by their facilities church has a big, beautiful building or, or maybe a historic building that's been around for hundreds of years, it's kind of easy for a congregation to let itself become driven by the perceived need to pres- preserve that building or, or showcase their building for the community or make sure that building is glistening all the time for the next photo op that might come up. It can become all about the building. Instead of the facility being seen as a tool to serve a higher purpose, it becomes the focal point. We could name many, many other things that can vie and do, vie for the spotlight in the life of a church, and those things are not necessarily bad. In fact, those are all really good things, aren't they? However, the gospel-driven mindset says that none of those things must be allowed to displace Jesus and his gospel message as the centerpiece of church life. That's what needs to stay front and center, the focal point. See, the people in a gospel-driven church are saying, we want Jesus to be at the center of all of our ministries and all of our activities, our first consideration when we make decisions about the future and direction, our highest priority. Other things are fine. They're fine in their place. But we view those things as serving a higher purpose. We are resolved to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, I've become convinced that becoming and staying gospel-driven as a church is not an easy thing to do. It takes passion and prayer and energy to keep that laser focus on Jesus and His gospel. And I think it's going to involve not just me, being laser focused or our ministry staff, but all of us together as ministry partners in this church. Here's what I think it's going to take from all of us, several things. a commitment to increasingly know Jesus and His gospel message, and to be captivated by Jesus and His gospel, to grow in our understanding of the gospel story and it's all of its multifaceted, multi-layered story. It's going to take us at every level teaching and learning God's Word first and foremost as the story of Jesus Christ. It's going to take a commitment to becoming skilled at connecting every area of our lives to the Gospel just like we see that Paul did in his writings in the the Word of God. It's going to take us reserving our deepest passion, being most passionate about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I remember listening to a podcast by... Dr. D.A. Carson, he was talking to pastors like me, and he said, you know what? You need to understand something. Your people will interpret whatever you're most passionate about as the gospel. That struck home. Reserving our deepest passion for the person and work of Jesus Christ, what He's done. It's going to take all of us championing Jesus and the gospel as the first consideration in all decisions about priority and direction and sometimes consciously saying no to other good things that vie for center stage and becoming intentional about allowing the gospel to shape every aspect of our life as a redeemed community. I think it's going to take that. You know, I found that one enemy of keeping the gospel front and center is... Assuming the gospel. Just assuming it. Not rejecting it outright, but just just assuming it. What I mean by that is just kind of taking it for granted or taking for granted that everybody already knows it. Everybody already knows the gospel. Or viewing the gospel as the ABCs of Christianity, like the elementary stuff that you kind of move on from and graduate from onto other things. Or viewing the gospel as a message for Non-Christians, but not for Christians. Assuming the gospel. I have a new axiom that's kind of formed in my mind the last few years. Never assume the gospel. Never. You've heard me say this before. One man said that what gets believed in one generation often gets assumed in the next, forgotten in the next, and denied in the next. So for the sake of our great-grandchildren, Let's stay focused and fixated on Jesus Christ and his gospel. A hundred years from now, if this church is still around, I hope and pray that Jesus Christ is front and center as that church is being led by our great-grandchildren, perhaps. Never assume the gospel. A church body that wants Jesus' gospel to remain at the center will not allow for it. And so I believe New Life Church is resolute in declaring that Jesus must be given the spotlight in church life and that both leaders and members are responsible for maintaining and guarding that focus. Now, back to the conversation with the church planter at lunch. First question, what is a gospel-driven church? I gave him my best shot. Next question, he asked, which might be yours as well. Why? Why? Why seek to become a gospel driven church now I've heard variations of that question on a number of occasions past few years people have asked the same question different ways but I think what people really want to know is what's the motive what, what, what's underneath this choosing this direction some people when they've asked it, even have a little edge to their question which is justifiable I understand that what I perceive what people want to know is this is this just the latest fad or cool trend in Christianity and we're just trying to get in on it? Is new life trying to go this direction because that's what so-and-so fill in the blank with some cool, hip, young, trend-setting pastor is doing? Or are we doing this just because this is what Mark Driscoll is doing or Matt Chandler? Are we just copycatting? Is that what we're doing here? Beyond that, is this something that's going to have staying power at New Life? Or is it going to fade away after a few months and then we'll be kind of moving on to something else? Most of the time when people ask me the why question, it's not because they don't want Jesus and his gospel front and center. If you're a Christian, that's what you want. You want that in the life of your church. More likely, I think, it comes from the belief that human leaders are fallible and have feet of clay. They want to know if their leader's motives are pure and if they're going to have the fortitude to stick with something over time. And so what I can tell you at this point in this journey is this. I truly believe at the core of my being that it's the Lord who's leading us in this direction. I don't think I'm the one that's ultimately behind it. I feel pulled, like compelled. And truth be told, when it comes to our leadership team here at New Life, there were others on our staff who were leaning in a gospel direction before I was. didn't originate with me. And I found in the last few years that others have been praying for this. And a lady come up after first service saying, I was one of those who was praying that we would recapture Jesus at the center. So I'm convinced it's a God thing. That God's doing it. To the extent that I know what's in my own heart, and I know that the heart is often deceitful, but to the extent that I know what's in my heart, I don't believe I'm promoting this direction in order to copy some other pastor or some other church. In fact, one of the commitments our leadership team made together early on is that we were not going to go to some conference at some church somewhere that was doing it and go hear what they were doing and buy their manual and bring it back here and read it and try to overlay here what they're doing there. We decided not to do that. We said, what we're going to do is pray and seek the Lord, seek the head of the church, listen and follow. Pray, listen and follow. And that's what we've been seeking to do for the last several years. You say, well, have you learned from others? Well, sure. Has God used certain pastors and leaders to influence us in this direction? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Do we listen to Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul and C.J. Mahaney and Tully and Chavigian and others to try to understand this more? Yes. But when it comes to how gospel-centeredness fleshes out in this congregation, our primary strategy has been to pray, listen, and follow. Pray, listen, and follow. We're mostly just asking the head, Jesus, to unfold this for us a step at a time, and that's why it's been an adventure What's it going to be next, Lord? What what other area of our church's life are you going to cause the gospel to press into? Parenting? Worship? Children's ministries? What's it going to be? Missions? That makes it an adventure. I feel like we're on an adventure together with God. But motives aside, maybe there are some of you who wonder about the scriptural basis. Is there a biblical basis for keeping Jesus and his gospel message front and center in the life of a church. And so I want to quickly make a scriptural case for that, okay? Let me point out some things. First, the gospel was the central message of Jesus. Why should we put the gospel at the center? Well, it was the central message of Jesus Christ himself. Mark 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message he preached all throughout his ministry. One time he was moving from one city to another and some people were challenging, well, why are you doing that? And he said, well, in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This was his message. That's why it needs to be our main message. Second, the gospel is also the primary message that Jesus told his followers to proclaim. So he proclaimed it. He said, you who follow me, this, I want this to be center stage in your message. We saw this verse last week, Mark sixteen fifteen. He said to them, his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's why we keep the gospel at the center. Third reason, Jesus declared that his gospel was the anticipation of all of the Old Testament scriptures. You've heard us say this before, but John 5.39, he looked at some religious people and he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus said the Old Testament points to me. With the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a description of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now some people have made the comment to me over the past couple years, well, aren't there other things in the Bible besides the gospel? My answer, yes and no. Yes, there are other things in the Bible, but Jesus said they all point to him. All of them. Some pastors are inclined to use the Bible mostly as like a resource book for finding principles to help people live successfully and live better lives. I've done that. And certainly the Bible is full of such principles. But Jesus routinely told people that the scriptures were primarily about him, not them, that they're about his story Not ours, primarily. Why gospel at the center? Fourth, the gospel was the central message of the early apostles and spiritual leaders. So Jesus told his followers, go preach the gospel. It's what they did. From Peter to Stephen to Philip to Paul. Peter's first famous message recorded in Acts 2. Here it is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is that message? Is that not the gospel message? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. You read in Acts 7, Stephen's message, it was the same thing. Philip in Acts 8, with the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, remember that? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's interesting, Preach the gospel, making disciples, those are linked can't make disciples apart from the gospel. Then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That was their message, the gospel. And then Paul wrote this in Acts 20. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow, I'm not there. What was he saying? He's saying, well, you know, my life doesn't really matter that much what matters is that the gospel gets proclaimed and that's why he wrote in Ephesians 3 7 of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power this was the message of the early church some people are saying we need to get back to the early church we need to get back to what they were doing we know what they were doing they were loving and worshiping and serving Jesus Here's the one that got me, tipped me over the edge. Gospel was the message that Paul considered to be of first importance. Writing to a church, Christians, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, Christians, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Do you see those four words? As of first importance. How many things can be of first importance? Just one. I saw that I was like, there it is the message that is of first importance, the gospel. I got to thinking that, you know, the ordinances of the church picture the gospel for us, don't they? Think of baptism. When someone is in that baptistry, they are lowered into the water to picture Christ's death and burial and raised, hopefully, to life, to live in a new life. Baptism, Paul wrote in Romans 6, pictures the gospel events. And then when he talked about the Lord's table, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion, the Lord's table, is also a picture of the gospel. These two observances that Jesus entrusted to his church and challenged us to keep and practice often picture the gospel, to keep it in the center of our attention. There are many reasons why We need to stay gospel centered. This last one I've listed here. The gospel is the message that is to be most fiercely defended, guarded and faithfully preserved in its transmission by the church. In fact, if you read Galatians chapter one, Paul, in essence, told that church mess with the gospel and very bad things are going to happen to you. Very bad things. Don't tamper with it it's not ours to tamper with really to a young pastor named timothy he wrote this in first timothy six: "Oh timothy guard the deposit entrusted to you guard it don't let it get watered down don't let people sand the hard edges off of it to make it more palatable guard it and then pass it on second timothy 2 1 you then my child still talking to timothy he must have been a young guy Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that was the gospel, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's how to keep the gospel from getting assumed, forgotten, denied. Guard it. Pass it on to faithful people who will pass it on to the next generation and the next generation so that our great-grandchildren a hundred years from now Love Jesus Christ, hopefully. These and dozens of passages I become convinced that the Lord of the Church wants his gospel to be and remain front and center in our church life. Now, being centered on the gospel doesn't mean that we can't ever talk about anything else. Life issues like marriage and Parenting and dealing with stress and making good decisions and resolving conflict and our finances and facing our fears. We can and should talk about all of those things. They're all part of our story, aren't they? But the gospel gives us a new lens through which to see all of those things. Did you know that facing your greatest fears is a gospel issue? Did you know that parenting your children is a gospel matter? Did you know that resolving conflict and dealing with stress, the gospel speaks into those things? We just have to find the gospel connection there. And it's there. See, I'm convinced the gospel affects everything. Everything in our lives. As Philippians 27 says, only let your manner of life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, All of this gospel talk begs the question, doesn't it? Uh, Pastor Steve, what is the gospel? (laughs) My church planner friend didn't have to ask that question because he already knew what the gospel is. But we did spend the remainder of our lunch talking about the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gloriousness of his plan to redeem people. So let me take our final few minutes and rehearse once again the message that is of first importance. What is the gospel? Well, scholars tell us that the gospel is both story and announcement. The gospel is the story of who? Of Jesus Christ, who came as the fulfillment of all that God had promised. And it's the announcement to all of humanity that he has come. And he offers himself to all who will repent and believe his word. Story and announcement. It's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't give just one single authorized formulation of the gospel. It's too multifaceted for that, multi-layered. And so I like to say that the gospel is like a diamond with many stunning and beautiful facets. The diamond is my favorite metaphor for the gospel because of the similarities. Think about it. As a diamond is marveled at, so the gospel should rightly be marveled at. As a diamond is stunning in its beauty, so the gospel is stunning in its beauty. As a diamond diamond is treasured for its value, so the gospel rightly understood should be treasured for its immense value, as a diamond is carefully guarded for its preservation and protection, so the gospel must be jealously guarded for its protection and preservation. The gospels like a diamond. another metaphor I love is an ocean. The gospels like an ocean with a shallow end on the beach, and then the huge depths of the ocean you know on a little child can dip their toes in the gospel and understand that Jesus loves them and died for them. But you know what? You can spend all of your days swimming through the depths of the gospel ocean and not not glean a hundredth of what the gospel is all about. It's an ocean. It's vast, huge, deep. But a little child can understand it. Thank God for the gospel. You say, well, what is it? Can you... Can you put it in a nutshell for me? Well, I'll try. Simply stated, the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Especially his saving, redeeming work for us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The person of Jesus Christ and his work. What he did to save and redeem people. Let me remind you of who this man is and what he did. I put this on the back of your outline there. Hopefully in a form that you could tape it to your bathroom mirror at home or tack it onto the bulletin board at your cubicle at the office just to remind you of this man that we're so devoted to and why we are. Jesus is the powerful Creator. Amen? By whom and for whom all things were made, John 1 tells us. Jesus is the promised Messiah, anointed one. The fulfillment of God's promise to Israel that a descendant of David would one day come and reign over his people. Jesus is the law fulfiller. You've heard me say this. He came and lived the perfect life that nobody else could live. Jesus lived it. He fulfilled the law in every way. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who though completely innocent would be slaughtered for the sins of the world. John the Baptist looked out over the rise one day and he saw a man walking up and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the people looked and there wasn't a lamb, there was a man. It was Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the wrath remover, as Pastor Jay mentioned in his prayer, who would absorb in his own body the full brunt of God's righteous anger against our sin. Thank God for that. Jesus is the suffering Savior who would be tortured and executed in order to redeem a people for Himself. You know, there is no sin outside the reach and the offer of the grace of God. You think of the, in your mind, the worst sinner, the serial killer, the child molester, the, the, the rapist. No sin is outside the reach of the grace of God. You come in today with a past, perhaps, like we all have, and I'm here to tell you that the Gospel can reach you and transform you. Jesus will receive you as you are. You say, but my life's dirty. My past is dirty. I'm I'm a wreck. Yeah, just come to Him. Just come to Jesus with all your junk. He will redeem you, forgive you, make you clean, transform you. The filthiest, vilest sinner And the most religious, self-righteous, smug, arrogant church person. He'll redeem both. Amen? The prodigal and the Pharisee. Both within the reach of his grace. Jesus is the suffering Savior. Jesus is the living Lord who would rise victoriously from the grave and impart his resurrection life to all who would believe Jesus is the gracious giver of his perfect righteousness to everyone who repents. His straight-A report card gets credited to all who believe. And when you stand before God, you're like, i got straight-A's. Awesome. It's Jesus' record given to you at the great exchange. Jesus is the righteous ruler sent from heaven to establish his kingly reign on earth and usher in the truly good life for his royal subjects. A truly good life. Life with God He sets before us. And we can live under His gracious rule when we trust in Him. And let's not forget, Jesus is the truly just judge who one day at the end of the age will evaluate and separate humanity and set all things right and reward His people. He is the just judge. And Jesus is the glorious God Himself, who will usher in a new creation, rule over it, and reconcile all things to Himself. That's Jesus, that, and so much more that I didn't mention. That's the good news of the Gospel, and that's the message that needs to stay front and center in this church. Jesus. Let's make sure to note this, that the announcing of the Gospel always calls for a response. You can't hear that message and go, whatever. When Jesus preached the gospel, he called for a response, didn't he? Repent and believe the good news. The gospel called for a response when Jesus spoke it, when Peter and Paul and John spoke it. The gospel called for a response when you first heard it. And the gospel calls for a response today. And the response God always desires is that we repent of our sin and our idolatry and believe the gospel anew and afresh and trust Jesus and his work for us on an ever deeper level. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. He says, you know what? All the junk in our life, the sin, the problems, the addictions, when you trace them all down to their root, their core, it's a failure to truly believe the gospel and what Christ has done for his people. I think he's right. We're going to explore that more in the upcoming weeks. What's the response? Repent and believe the good news. And I know some of you hear that and you say, well, I already did that. I did that when I was six or 16 or 26 or 36. And if that's how you think, listen to the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the church At Wittenberg in 1516. Listen. Thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent. He intended that the entire life of believers be repentance. Lifelong repentance. The leaders in this church need to be the chief repenters. All of us. Ongoing repentance. Just hearing the gospel again today is leading me to repent of things in my heart that the Lord's brought to the surface and shown me. How about you? Maybe you're saying, hey, I'm just still trying to recover from middle school. (laughs) Can the gospel help me at all with uh, dealing with the brutality that took place during those years? And that's a good question. Come back next week and we will uncover how the gospel has the power to shape our identity, how we view ourselves. And that's huge, isn't it? All of our behavior flows out of our self perception. And we're going to talk about how the gospel shapes that perception. All right, well, will you bow your heads with me? Think about what you've heard today. Think about Jesus Christ. That man. That incredible man. Think about what he did. What he's doing. I'm just curious. I just want to ask. How many of you would say, you know, I I truly do want Jesus to be at the center of my life. A desire is there. I don't always live it out, but, but God's put that desire in me that Jesus be the focal point of my life. Can I see your hands? The desire is there. Praise God for that. Praise God for that desire and put your hands down thank you Lord some of you maybe today you're you're hearing this and and the truth about you is you just need a bigger picture of Jesus you know maybe you're coming to realize I I think maybe that man is more than I really thought he was and maybe you'd appreciate me including you in a prayer for that would you lift your hands I just need a bigger view of Jesus Christ in my life that's where I'm at okay many many of us how about this one? I wonder how many of you the Lord is calling you to trust Him on a whole nother level with an area of your life. Anybody like that? God's calling me to trust Him on a whole nother level. <laughs> I've been at level A, and He wants me down at level D. You can put your hands down. Jesus. Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for being an amazing person. Mind-boggling. We cannot comprehend all that you are. Thank you for being all the things we just listed a few moments ago and and 10,000 things more. For those who said they need a bigger view of you today, Lord, I mean, that's your work in their heart and life, through your Holy Spirit and your word, to enlarge their view of who you are, and I pray that you would do it. Thank you for those who have that desire that you be at the center of their attention and the center of their affections. And Lord, many of us, you're calling us to trust you on a deeper level with something, a relationship, a decision, a friendship, a job. Grant us the faith to believe. Lord, may we be a church resolute in keeping you and your gospel front and center in the life of this church. Be honored by that, we pray. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Amen.